are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are the addiction doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to The Addiction Files. We are thrilled. We are back tonight, starting a series tonight on co-occurring mental health disorders with substance use. And we're starting off tonight with Dr. Mason Turner discussing anxiety disorders with substance use. And this is a topic I am really excited about because this is probably one of the most challenging challenging mental health disorders and something that I encounter frequently, and I know Paula does. So I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Turner. He's going to introduce himself and we'll get started. So Dr. Turner. Great. Thank you so much. And hi, everyone. I'm Mason Turner. I'm a psychiatrist and addiction medicine physician and the senior medical director for behavioral health for Intermountain Health. Dr. Turner, just start us off a little bit and tell us a little bit about some of the epidemiology, like how common is anxiety disorders in general, and then some of the like co-occurring with substance use disorders. So how often are we seeing this? Yeah, and I think I would like to start off by saying, you know, anxiety is different than anxiety disorders. And it's very important to recognize that I nearly probably 100% of people have experienced anxiety in their lifetime. And partly that's because this is a hardwired response that goes back to when we first became humans, actually. Uh, We needed to have anxiety and fear to drive us away from situations that might kill us. A saber-toothed tiger that was chasing us and might eat us, for example, Anxiety and fear really uh, would drive us away from those dangerous situations. But anxiety and fear are designed to have a peak. You get out of the situation, and then it actually goes away. Uh, What we found is we think about anxiety in particular, anxiety is becoming more and more ubiquitous because we have a lot of stress in our lives. We have an inability to take time sometimes, to take a a break, a pause. And the anxiety and stress really can drive a, a lot of just different issues for us, including substance use as well. And we can talk more about that as we go along. Anxiety disorders, which about 30% of the population will suffer at some point in their lives, are really quite debilitating disorders that range of various types of presentations, from generalized anxiety disorder to panic disorder, uh, to other forms of anxiety disorders that we can talk about the correlation between those and substance use disorders as well. But it's very important to recognize the difference between those two. And as I'm giving uh, comments throughout tonight's uh, presentation, I will make that differentiation when that's important. Yeah, that's really interesting. We'd love to just start with that and hear more about about that topic in general. Can you can you expound? Yeah. So let's talk first about stress and stress reduction and how that factors in with anxiety and substance use in general. So all of us have had the experience of having an anxiety perhaps an acute anxiety attack of some sort, being very fearful of something or worried. Those are very common emotions for many of us. And that's a very uncomfortable emotion for many of us as well. And so part of the reason we worry about the connection between anxiety and substance use is that substance use of a variety of different types, whether it's alcohol, cannabis, opioids, a lot of other types of substances, actually helps to reduce the anxiety immediately and in the short term. What happens then is we have a rebound anxiety as that substance wears off that can be worse than the original episode. And so what ends up happening, though, is our brain associates the relief of that anxiety and that fear with the ingestion of that substance because it happens so rapidly. And so oftentimes, maybe that drink that you have at night to kind of relax after a difficult day 
your brain will interpret that as being, hey, I really like this alcohol because it gets rid of the anxiety in 30 seconds or a minute and doesn't remember that three or four hours later, it might come back in really a more roaring fashion. And so that can drive more and more use of alcohol or other substances as we get used to that pairing and can be very difficult to decouple that. So that's one of the issues that I really worry about when I hear people say, hey, you know, I want to go out and I want to vape a bit because the nicotine helps to relax me. Or drink after work really helps me to transition uh, to relaxing at home and being with my family or something along those lines. That actually can be uh, the beginnings of a potentially problematic use and even a use disorder. So that's the first thing I would say about anxiety and stress. Yeah, that's so interesting because society kind of promotes that uh, mindset as well, doesn't it? I mean, especially with alcohol, it's just so normalized to, oh, we're stressed, we de-stress, we unwind with a glass of wine. And uh, that coupling can is, is normalized, as, but as you said, it can actually be problematic. That's right. So I guess, what is the frequency that you're seeing some of these anxiety disorders now? And for instance, alcohol use disorders, what's the prevalence of that? And then what is the most common? Is it alcohol use disorders and generalized anxiety disorder? Or is it opiate use disorder and anxiety disorders? Which, which is more common? Yeah, so the most common anxiety disorder is actually generalized anxiety disorder, which is basically symptoms of extreme worry. It can be mild in nature or very severe, where you're debilitated by the worry and not being able to make decisions. Mm -hmm. Also, generalized anxiety disorder can present with other uh, bodily aches, other we call somatic symptoms. It could be headaches. It could be a mild pain, other issues like that, where you're really sensitized to your environment. And then indecision oftentimes will go along with that because our brains really can't prioritize uh, pros and cons, for example, because the worry is so debilitating with generalized anxiety disorder that you frequently see indecision, inability to really make key life decisions, but even things like, you know, what restaurant to go to or, you know, who to call and go out with on the weekends or what movie to see and those kinds of issues really show up in, in generalized anxiety disorder, which again is the most common. However, it's not the only anxiety disorder that we worry about with substance use. There's also panic disorder, which is characterized by panic attacks. And those are brief periods of very intense anxiety, heart racing, it could be shortness of breath, it could be a feeling of imminent death, uh, and those types of issues. And that's a, a rare anxiety disorder, but also quite debilitating and can occur with a fear of, of being out in public or leaving the house. Related to panic disorder, also specific phobias. So a fear of heights or a fear of spiders, those are two of the more common ones, and social phobia, which is a fear of being in social situations, giving presentations and the like. And then we also characterize obsessive compulsive disorder as a type of anxiety disorder, either, even though it is not truly an anxiety disorder according to our diagnostic manuals in psychiatry. All of those together, uh, again, are very difficult and uncomfortable feeling states. So what our body is looking for is a way to get out of that to calm the worry down, to actually be able to prioritize choices and be able to make decisions, things of that nature. So what happens with substances is that the substances provide one way of actually dealing with that anxiety. And I always tell people, substances actually do help with your anxiety in the short term. We have to acknowledge that because our brains see it that way. But unfortunately, it's not a good long-term strategy. So as you think about the range of substance use disorders and the different levels of severity, we also want to look at how are people using substances related to their anxiety, and that at some point what happens, then those two just kind of go off in their own direction and become quite severe. So to answer your question around the kind of the prevalence between those two, 
what we know is that anxiety disorders typically start first and oftentimes will start uh, in the young adult years. Uh, late teens, early 20s is oftentimes when we see the first onset of an anxiety disorder. Now, you can also get anxiety disorders along the way all throughout the lifespan. But that's the most common time when those uh, disorders come on board. The substance use disorder typically shows up afterwards. So you have the anxiety disorder first, and then you begin using substances. You then couple together the relief of the anxiety in the short term with the substance, and then your brain and your body wants more of that substance. And then at some point, the substance use disorder is beginning to get more severe, independent of the anxiety disorder. Yeah, we see this all the time. And I'm interested in, you, I, you didn't talk about social anxiety disorder. Where would you place that amongst generalized anxiety disorder, panics, phobias, and obsessive compulsive disorder? Is it a subset of generalized anxiety disorder? Or is, it, is it its own um, you know, disorder amongst anxiety disorders? And how associated is that with substance use? Yeah, so social anxiety and then also social phobia, which is the other term that I might use to connect together panic attacks uh, with social situations, those are very common anxiety disorders, and they are anxiety disorders on their own. But unlike some of the other anxiety disorders, social anxiety actually cuts across the spectrum of anxiety and stress. So if I'm someone who really may be very introverted, is not used to being uh, in social situations, I'm invited to go to a party where there are going to be 100 people there on a Friday night. And this is terrifying to me, right? So many of you will have heard, what's the first thing somebody does in a situation like that? They head straight to the bar to get a drink to help be a, quote, social lubricant. And again, that is a way for people to actually relieve some of that anxiety, independent of having a disorder, by the way. But that also that coupling of the response with drinking actually is what becomes problematic over time. So I usually start off by saying you can have a little bit of social anxiety where you're really uncomfortable in those big parties. And you use alcohol in a way to facilitate conversation, but you need to be very cautious and pay very close attention to how the alcohol use progresses along with your anxiety and what other methods and techniques are you using to tolerate getting in the front door of that party. But they are their own anxiety disorders. Yeah, because we see it so commonly. I know you do, obviously, because you do psychiatry and addiction medicine, but this coupling of social anxiety with or social phobia, like you said, with alcohol use, and it's People who have just terrible social anxiety and alcohol has come in and then makes everything just terribly worse. And then they often get treated with benzodiazepines along the way. And then that, of course, in and of itself can become a conundrum. That's right. And the, the benzodiazepines can be very useful in the short term. However, they don't get to the root cause of the anxiety disorder itself, the biochemical root cause. So there are other ways that actually recommend getting to that root cause and working with your anxiety and getting longer-term relief. Unfortunately, benzodiazepines have the same problem as alcohol. In fact, they work on some of the same receptors. So that someone takes an Ativan or a Xanax when they're in that party, immediately get relief, they pair that together, and then you really can see an escalation of use over time. And it doesn't actually result in any kind of long-term benefit. So how do you differentiate the treatment? Well, I mean, you may want to talk about the treatment of anxiety disorders in general, but how do you differentiate the treatment of anxiety disorders for a population of people who experience substance use disorder? How does it differ? Yeah, so one of the core tenets of treating a co-occurring mental health condition with a substance use disorder is that you want to treat the two together simultaneously. Now, I've been in the field long enough to remember when we were told the addiction is always predominant treat the addiction first, and then worry about the anxiety disorder later, that never works very well. Because what happens 
the alcohol, which is reducing the anxiety to at least some degree, once that's off and no one's using the alcohol anymore, their anxiety level soars and gets much worse. They then resume using alcohol to deal with the anxiety because of that coupling that I talked about. And so you end up with a worse situation in many respects. So it's always best to treat the two together. And fortunately, some of the same techniques we use for treating uh, substance use disorders and addictions also work for anxiety disorders as well. We see this, like you talked about, an amplification of anxiety in the absence of the substance. So you not only have the underlying or primary anxiety, when you remove the substance, then you may have even more like a rebounded effect. So do you address that specifically, or is it more just psychoeducation, like informing people, okay, you're going to have an increased state of anxiety and we'll help you through it? Or like, what's your, I'm interested in your clinical approach with that, since we see this on a day-to-day basis in our clinical practice, especially in like the post-acute setting of people just stopping alcohol or getting off of benzodiazepines. Yeah, so there's also another piece of the anxiety that I'd like to point out around uh, the use of substances and actually the obtaining of substances, a term that we call anticipatory anxiety, which many people that struggle with addictions will will know very well. There's an anxiety about getting, if it's an, an illicit substance, getting that illicit substance or having enough of it. Or maybe if it's someone getting uh, alcohol on a Saturday, making sure they have enough to last them through Sunday when all of the state liquor stores are closed. So those types of issues will really come up around anticipatory anxiety. And many times I will see people just getting into recovery, just when looking to address their addiction, they have a lot of anticipatory anxiety about what to expect. So that's the first piece that we have to work with is really understanding what techniques can we give people to work with that issue specific to their substance use. Now, as they get into uh, early recovery or the looking at withdrawal management in the case of alcohol in particular, anxiety is one of the characteristics of early stage alcohol withdrawal. And that's also true of opioid withdrawal, among others. And so there is that biochemical piece that oftentimes we can actually medicate pretty effectively in the first you know, seven days or so of stopping a substance. And then we begin to look at what are the long-term anxiety issues that we're facing? What was the history before they started using substances? What have they noticed about the trajectory of their anxiety over time as they've been using more and more? And that will then give me some clues around, are we looking at a primary anxiety disorder that needs to be treated separately? Or is the anxiety really related to the addiction and the substance use? And that can be extraordinarily tricky to sort out, especially at the very beginning of treatment. When you talk about this post-acute withdrawal syndrome, at what point do you say we have crossed that threshold of these are just the withdrawal symptoms to you do have an underlying anxiety disorder because that is a classic conundrum that we face on a daily basis of sometimes it is difficult to get a good history from the patient that this really truly preceded their substance using history because because exactly what you just said that this started the substance use started as a teen and really was anxiety proceeding or, but they've been, some of them have been using for so long, it's difficult to get a really clear history. It can be very, very difficult. And if you're fortunate enough to have that, great, then you know what you're dealing yeah. with and you know, start treatment immediately. That's the other piece as well. Don't wait 30 days of sobriety, quote unquote, yeah. to start treatment, but really start that immediately. If you know that from the mm-hmm. outset, that will be very important. I would say that in terms of diagnosing an anxiety disorder, especially in early recovery, 
it really has to do with looking at the trajectory of the symptoms as the substance is removed. So someone who gets into abstinence from alcohol after about two weeks or three weeks and their anxiety symptoms are getting worse, automatically I can assume that is probably an independent anxiety disorder or stress that needs to be looked at and regulated as well. And we start kind of with the same treatment for both of those. Either how do we look at stress reduction or how do we treat an underlying generalized anxiety disorder using a variety of different therapeutic techniques? So that would be the first piece of it. But then really, as you get further along into abstinence, say at two or three months, and the person is really, really struggling and the anxiety is just really not getting better, then my suspicion for an anxiety disorder goes way, way up. That's great advice. And I think that, I mean, this is advice I was given from mentors years ago, the same thing. They're like, treat what you're seeing, treat what you're seeing and continue to monitor. And before, again, not waiting to treat the patient, because like you said, they'll just return to use if we aren't treating them. That's right. And back to what you were talking before is um, back to this kind of acute stress reaction. Paul and I treat a little bit of kind of a niche population, but we do, both of us have jobs where we treat a lot of patients in the jail and prison system. And all of us still are probably treating patients coming in and out of those systems. But we see an acute and I don't know if it's appropriate, and this is what you tell me, is it appropriate to label this kind of acute adjustment disorder with anxiety? I see this really severe panic, like panic disorder with agoraphobia from people particularly coming out of incarceration and with severe like panic attacks and agoraphobia because of their situation, trying to reintegrate into society. But this is a new symptom for them. It's not been... It's it's brand new. And so what do what do we call that? And then often all of them have like substance use disorders as well. And what's the best way to treat it? Yeah, so a couple yeah. of thoughts on that end. I mean, one in terms of the acute stress reaction, absolutely we see that and we see it very frequently, particularly in those who who have suffered with an addiction for their entire lifetime. Maybe they started using at very early stage, early teens, or even earlier than that they've used for 10, 20, 30 years. And then all of a sudden what happens, they want to get into a different life. They want to address yeah. uh, their condition. Well, they've lived with this for 30 years. We're asking them to change their friends, perhaps their primary intimate relationships, maybe repair issues with their children that actually have, have gone unrepaired for a long time. And that is really massively stressful and even traumatic, I would say, that looking mm -hmm. forward towards that can be very, very challenging. So whenever I'm working with someone who's in that kind of framework, it's always about let's not try to do everything at once. Yes, there's some things we need to look at acutely, a living situation maybe, or maybe getting out of an abusive relationship. Those are really acute emergent issues, but there it's, it's stages, right? So people go through stages of recovery as they move forward. And sometimes people, when they get into recovery, think they have to address everything at once. So that's the first mm -hmm. thing I would say about that traumatic kind of stress reaction is important to keep in mind. Uh, and that varies for individuals depending on their situation. Some people maybe who've been struggling with addictions for only a year or two may have less in terms of the changes they need to make in their lifestyle or their environment than those who've struggled for 20, 30 years. So that's important. The other piece that's relevant to your question, though, that I really want to make sure the audience hears is that if we look at treatment-seeking populations for those with substance use disorders, the rate of trauma in those individuals, and frankly, probably post-traumatic stress disorder, is 14 times greater than the general population. 
So oftentimes what you're seeing is not an adjustment reaction or trying to deal with an acute stressor. What you're seeing is that those years of tamping down those traumatic memories with cannabis, alcohol, opioids, methamphetamine, all of a sudden they're flooding back. And that becomes a really big issue, especially as we move into the second and third months of of abstinence and sobriety and recovery. Absolutely. That was going to be my next question about how much does trauma play a part? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because I've, I, this is something that we have those conversations with patients regularly is if you weren't traumatized before you kind of begin this process, your substance use, even incarcerations, you're traumatized after they're traumatized coming out because it's, it's a very traumatizing process. And I think that's something we really need to be aware of just as their treatment providers. I would also add that for those of you who are treating addictions, it's really important to keep in mind that sometimes our addiction treatment paradigms and protocols are traumatizing as well. So we have to be very careful when working with patients to not use a one-size-fits-all approach. We may have in our minds as, as clinicians that, okay, you need to go to inpatient withdrawal management, you need to go to residential for 90 days, intensive outpatient, outpatient, and so forth. Actually, what we have to think about is, is that realistic for the person if they fail along the course of that? Or as I like to say, if our treatment fails the person, how are they going to perceive that? Is this going to be the another in a long string of failures in their life and perceived failures in their life? Or is this going to be seen as, okay, I need to think about my treatment in a different way? And oftentimes, it's that failure after failure after failure they've experienced, and then we've actually uh, kind of supported that through our treatment paradigm. So very important to keep that in mind, especially with those that are in recovery for the first time. I love that. That's so salient. I love that. It's very important to remember that. I have a question for you for just in terms of treatment approaches for anxiety disorders in general. I mean, we know that, you know, SSRIs are preferred medications in terms of generalized anxiety disorder and also panic disorders and even obsessive compulsive disorder, and then cognitive behavioral therapy would be kind of your standard approach. Has there been anything else that you have found particularly effective for this population? Like I know that um, there are people that are working on mindfulness approaches to treating mood disorder, and uh, there are things kind of in the integrative health realm, but is there anything in particular that you found in your clinical acumen that's helpful, that's been helpful? Yeah, so psychotherapy remains the first line of treatment for any anxiety disorder. And yeah, there can be some disagreement among professionals about which type of psychotherapy, but typically cognitive behavioral therapy is considered to be the gold standard for most anxiety disorder treatment. Now, I would add there's a mindfulness-based cognitive therapy that's particularly helpful for anxiety disorders and depression. This is actually fairly short-term, and that's another option as well. But frankly, I've had a lot of patients who've gotten better from actually using self-help apps, learning how to meditate, engage in mindful practice, gratitude practices. All of these things that we may think about as professionals or kind of low-touch interventions can be very, very effective. A lot of it has to do, though, with our ability as providers and clinicians to coach our patients to use those resources, understand them ourselves, and understand how they work, perhaps using them ourselves first as well. But then really uh, coaching our patients through how best to use them making sure they're engaged. And then, of course, thinking about the individualized approach is really important as well. So I like to say that that's the basis of any anxiety disorder treatment. Medications then for generalized anxiety disorder in particular, particularly when it's severe, are oftentimes necessary as well. Is there a certain app that you like? Is there a certain resource that you found 
that is really user-friendly? Yeah, there are a couple actually, and, and there are more every single day, it seems like. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ten more apps are being released. But mm-hmm. a couple of my favorite ones are My Strength, which is a, a really excellent program, particularly for trauma reactions. Not full-blown post-traumatic stress disorder per se, but trauma reactions to various issues that occur in our lives. Uh, that's a really good app. Uh, Calm and some of the other other mindfulness applications are really good too. And I think, again, the basis of these are really around psychoeducation, mindfulness practice, gratitude practices, and stress reduction. So that's the other piece that I would add, that every one of us, everyone listening to this uh, podcast, everyone out there needs to look at stress reduction. I don't care where you are, who you are, right? We all have too much stress. And that can be oftentimes a really good way to start off by looking at stress reduction. Where can you reduce stress? How can you build practices into your daily routine that minimize stress, like mindfulness or other practices that get you kind of out of that day-to-day grind? And then what to do when you actually need help because the stress has gotten so severe. And oftentimes, those very intentional conversations with your support system, coupled with use of some of these self-care apps, that's a really good place to start. That's wonderful advice. I love that. I find that, I mean, this may be coming from personal use, but I know that there is evidence to support exercise and movement. I think it has something to do with burning off some of those stress hormones. A lot of people find great relief from anxiety and people in recovery can often key into that as well, as well as the mindfulness apps. Can you repeat the name of that app that you said is helpful for people with trauma reactions? It's strength? My strength. My, My strength. strength. Okay, perfect. All right. Well, Just tell us, when it comes to like the medications, we frequently run into this. Patients will always ask, well, Xanax is the only thing that works for me. And particularly when patients with a substance use disorder, we really try to not start the benzodiazepines and we want to be really cautious about that. So what do you do? What is your approach in that situation? It's a great question. Let me give you kind of a couple of scenarios to think about. So let's yeah. say you have someone who has never taken a benzodiazepine, never taken Xanax or what have you, comes in and says, you know, I'm a month into my recovery. I'm super anxious. If I could just get something to help with my anxiety every once in a while, that would be great. Please do not reach for the benzodiazepine. Don't reach for Xanax. Don't reach for Ativan. If somebody's not already on it, please do not start them on the medication. There are some very specific indications that I use this for, uh, say, dental procedures. Some people are terrified of that. A little Xanax prior to that is is great. Give them two or three tablets to get them through that. Uh, Taking a 14-hour flight somewhere, a couple of Xanax to get through the flight is probably very appropriate. Um, But again, even that I do use some caution about, especially in people in early recovery, because it activates that addiction motor in our brain oftentimes, and that half a milligram of Xanax can actually lead to a resumption of alcohol on board that airplane where they're trying to take the medication to calm their nerves. So again, don't start Xanax or other benzodiazepines if the person's not been on it. There are far better ways of managing the anxiety. All too often, though, that's not the situation we're faced with. We're faced with someone who comes into us drinking heavily with a severe alcohol use disorder on very high-dose Valium or Xanax or clonazepam. And really, what do you actually do in those situations? So first of all, I think it's important to recognize that in general, we actually taper benzodiazepines too fast. And what happens if you taper benzodiazepines too fast, anxiety levels will really increase dramatically and you actually can actually see people relapse as a result of that. So my usual recommendation with benzodiazepines, if you're going to engage in a taper and you want this to be in shared decision-making with the patient, 
because you'll be far more successful. The patient understands the risks, understands the reasons why you're recommending that. Really don't go any faster than 10% every two to four weeks with the dose reductions. That will take you quite a while to get the person off the, the Valium or the Clonopin, but it's important to go that slowly. And I usually use a symptom-triggered approach, meaning I have a plan that's laid out over a course of you know, a year perhaps, but I do try to have flexibility, especially as we get to the lower doses about extending that or adding adjunctive medications. So you can do that, but do it very, very slowly. Now, if there's situations where someone's abusing the benzodiazepines, which frankly is actually very rare, we don't see that that often, where there's a benzodiazepine use disorder, for example, or there's issues where they're actually trying to obtain the medications by illicit sources, you know, calling in medications to a pharmacy when no doctor authorized it and so forth, then you do need to move a little bit more quickly and probably get the person off of those benzodiazepines using alternative methods. But those are pretty rare situations. Now, that's great. When do you start the adjunctive medications? Because that's common. And how often do you use those as they're tapering? And I think it's really interesting because I've seen that as well. They can they can taper sometimes fairly quickly in those higher doses. But as you get down to those lower doses, that's when you really start to see them uncomfortable. So I think that's a really great point. Yeah, and I think in terms of when to use those medications, it's really driven by, one, the patient. So how, with the tolerances for the patient for uncomfortable uh, feelings, like anxiety, mm-hmm. that's part of it. And then typically with someone who's in relatively early recovery, I do go ahead and start those very early because I am worried about increased yeah. anxiety leading to substance use. And so we'll usually start those a bit earlier. But I really recommend at the outset of any tapering, really, one, go into the conversation with the patient with a clear sense about why you're doing this. And it needs to be what the risks are and why this person cannot continue this in an ongoing fashion. Not, you know, the federal government through the DA is telling me that I'm prescribing too many benzos. Uh, (laughs) Those kinds of things don't usually get you too far with your patients. But if you can say, I'm worried about uh, your risk of uh, you an accident while driving, or I'm worried about Mm -hmm. the impact on your memory long-term and those kinds of issues, that will oftentimes help in that conversation. And then I have a very intentional conversation with the patient from the beginning saying, this is going to be rough. Let me not sugarcoat this. This is going to be rough, but we have to do it for these reasons. And let me know exactly what your tolerance is for how rough it needs to get before we do something differently. And oftentimes that will give you a good framework from which to operate at the outset of treatment and really help to improve the long-term outcomes and really the taper going much better. That's great. Do you just use SSRIs as your adjunctive medications or do you ever use mood stabilizers? There's been some data supporting those. Which do you find more helpful as you're tapering? SSRIs are really great if the person's not already on an SSRI. Mm -hmm. Many times they come in, they're already Already. maxed out on an SSRI, and they're also in the benzos. But I would say that uh, in those circumstances, sometimes actually I will change out the antidepressant to something else that may be a little bit stronger, uh, just to see if we get more out of that medication in terms of the ongoing taper. uh, And that can sometimes be very helpful. I love mood stabilizers for this as well because they protect against the seizure risk from withdrawal. And they also tend to kind of stabilize all those receptors a bit in a way that, you know, an SSRI does not. So I love mood stabilizers, particularly gabapentin, uh, valproic acid as well, if that's indicated, is a good one too. Very helpful. It's really helpful. Everything is so relevant and very interesting. Um, Great perspective. So thank you so much. I think, you know, going back to the concept of stress reduction and then just even mindfulness practice in general. I do try to make it a habit with anyone who's entering into treatment for the first time or trying to become mm-hmm. abstinent or even you know, control their use in different ways or reduce their use 
to talk about stress reduction. Uh, oftentimes, people with addictions come in and they also have behavioral addictions in other part of their lives. Maybe they're working too much. Maybe they're exercising too much. Maybe there's a balance that they need mm-hmm. to really look at. And oftentimes, starting from that perspective to say, let's look at this as you're going through the other treatments we're going to recommend. Let's reduce your stress. Don't wait until the anxiety shows itself. Have that conversation very proactively. I think it can be very useful. I love that. I love you bring up just really those lifestyle changes. And it's interesting. I don't know. Do you ever talk to your patients about caffeine use? <laughs> All our patients come with the monsters. And sometimes I wonder how much that plays a part in revving up some of their anxiety as well as their nicotine use. Some of these co-occurring substances playing a part in some of their anxiety. Yeah. And, you know, if we think about the concept of homeostasis, I mean, whatever substances you've got going on in your brain, even the ones potentially that are not terribly addictive, um, caffeine's probably fairly addictive, but nicotine <laughs> certainly is very addictive. All of those substances really keep your brain biochemically out of balance. Yeah. And so a lot of what we talk about in the psychosocial treatment of addictions is finding that balance, that biopsychosocial spiritual balance that's so important. Well, the same thing kind of holds with the chemicals we're putting in our bodies as well, right? And I've had experiences where people were like, you know, I want to get off all my medications and they come back, you know, two months later and they're on 40 different supplements. Like, well, that wasn't really the direction that we were thinking about going in. Like, let's look at balance and trying to figure out what do you need and how you can actually, you sit and tolerate some of those feelings and use non-medication techniques to deal with that. So again, very important and crucial conversations, which I feel like have to happen at the beginning of treatment. Yeah. And I think that has to happen around cannabis too. Um, I mean, Similarly, because people will hold on to cannabis because it's natural and plants and people think it's so helpful for anxiety, but it it also plays into the conversation. I'm sure you have conversation with your patients about cannabis and anxiety. I'm interested to hear what you say to them. Yes, a couple of things. This is a really important point, because if we look at cannabis in general, what's available, especially commercially through dispensaries, but even even with uh, cannabis is being procured on uh, kind of from illicit sources as well. It's much, much more potent than even what it was five or 10 years ago. And what we found that actually these more potent THC compounds drive more anxiety, they drive more psychosis, and they drive more mood instability. So that's the first thing I have a conversation with patients to say, hey, I hear that you say that cannabis is helping with your anxiety. You need to be aware that what's available you know, everywhere in society these days is very potent, and it may not work for your anxiety longer term as you have more exposure to that higher potency compound. Now, cannabis is interesting for those who have post-traumatic stress disorder or severe trauma. There is some evidence that activating the endocannabinoid system in our brain, which cannabis does or THC does, uh, actually reduces and suppresses negative memories. And so the conversation can be a little bit different with someone who comes in with post-traumatic stress disorder while we're trying to get them into a more appropriate longer-term treatment for their trauma. Um, sometimes I will, you know, kind of talk with them about some of the risk, but that is a very different conversation than someone with anxiety, which there's really not that much evidence that cannabis helps with anxiety. Oh, that's yeah, great. Okay, thank you. No, I love that you bring that up though, about this homeostasis and just, I think having that conversation with patients that we just need to give your brain some time and just removing these chemicals, just get some of these chemicals out of your body and out of your brain and just give your time to give you some time for recovery. Yeah. Any pulls or wrap it up for us? What what do our listeners need to know? So a couple yes. of clinical pearls, I'll just reemphasize again, that if somebody comes to you wanting benzodiazepines for anxiety that has not had exposure to those before, yeah. or it's been 
you know, many, many years back, please do not prescribe those even for the short-term use. They're really useful for alcohol withdrawal management Mm -hmm. uh, in most situations, but even in those situations, we may have alternatives Mm -hmm. Uh, because once you have someone on a benzodiazepine, it is very difficult to get them off that benzodiazepine. The other clinical pearl that I would give is really to make sure that you individualize your treatment recommendations based on the patient's goals and the patient's needs and their ability to engage in treatment. And keep in mind that, you know, someone who's a single mother with four kids is probably not going to be able to attend, you know, nine hours of IOP a week or may not be able to afford childcare to be able to do that. So really think about uh, not a one-size-fits-all approach, really individualizing your approach to each and every person that's sitting across from you. That's fantastic. That is yeah. great advice. And that's a great principle for all, all of medicine, but specifically treatment of substance use disorder. You know. Thank you so much. You've been a wealth of knowledge, and I think this is going to be so helpful for our listeners. So have a great night, everyone. Yeah. Thanks Thank a lot. You. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.